Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. I want to read the extended section because this is an entire theme concerning the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and its context. Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 16, all the way to verse 41. Let me read. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison, and they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with a reed, and they spat on his, on his face. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out to the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now, it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, saying, The King of the Jews. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, He saved others. He himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by, when they heard that, said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. As Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, 
This man was the Son of God. There were also women looking from on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and of Joseph, and Siloam, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray for your insight and understanding into this critical passage of Scripture that articulates this high point in redemptive history concerning the crucifixion of Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, today we come to this climactic passage here in Mark's Gospel concerning the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' earthly ministry, He predicted this crucifixion. And His mission was to purposely die in this manner here on the cross. And also, in addition to Jesus' purpose, which He purposed for Himself, he also taught his disciples that they also would, should take up the cross and follow him. So you can summarize it this way. This passage, both it fulfills the mission of Jesus Christ, and also it shows Jesus as the role model of what it means to take up your cross and be crucified in the eyes of the world. Now, there are two ways of looking at this passage. One way you can... Look at this passage and as a general overview. And that's what I want to do today, is look at the general overview of this passage of Scripture. The second way of looking at this passage is what I'm going to do next week. And we'll look at the details next week concerning the crucifixion. Because the details articulate the meaning or why all this stuff is happening here from a theological lens. For example... We're going to see the meaning next week as to why Jesus wears a crown of thorns. Why it's called Golgotha. Why the wine is rejected first and then later it's accepted. We know in other passages of Scripture he did taste the wine later. I actually may touch on this a little bit in my sermon. Why is there three hours of darkness? Why is the veil of the temple ripped from two from top to bottom? All of these details are God's way of giving you clues or insights to interpret this event and to say, oh, now I know why he's dying on the cross. We'll look at that later. <laughs> That's next week. Today, we're going to look at the general overview of this passage of Scripture. And what I first want to show you is the design of this passage of Scripture. Or, you can put it this way, the intentional structure of this passage as Mark is writing this out. Because he wants to give you an overview as well. And what Mark does, he's going to offer some comparisons and contrast. And these comparisons or contrasts are going to be different from what happens earlier in the passage versus what happens later in the passage. And the bottom, uh, the bottom line is this, is that when you look at an overview of this passage, the death of Jesus Christ actually changes things. That's what we're going to see. The sufferings of Christ change things. But what I want to do is to give you a visual presentation of this structure of the passage. I provided in your bulletin a handout that's printed on the back of your bulletin. 
very shortly and briefly. I want to go over this with you so you can see how the flow of this passage happens. We're going to start from the outer parts of this structure and move toward the inner part of the structure. Notice how the passage begins with soldiers mocking Jesus Christ. They're slapping Him. They're beating Him. They're acting like they're worshiping Him. You have this mockery of Jesus Christ. Well, at the end of the passage, one of these soldiers who is slapping Jesus, spitting on Jesus, and assisting Jesus, and even assisting the beating of Jesus, overseeing it, he is the one at the end of the passage that looks at Jesus Christ and says, truly, this is the Son of God. So the soldier's mocking, it starts and it ends with a soldier believing. If you move toward the, uh, start looking toward the center of the passage in the B sections there, there is the mention of the skull. The place of the skull is a place of death. That's Golgotha. That's, that's mentioned. Later, John Mark will say that Jesus dies. That's a mirror reflection there. And then we saw the, the theme of wine. The wine is first rejected by Jesus. And then later it's offered to Jesus. And we know in other parts of the scripture that he did taste the wine at that second point. There's a mirror reflection there as well. Also, as you move toward the center of this passage, there's a third hour that's mentioned where he's identified as the king of the Jews in a mocking way with his sign of the accusation. And then the sixth hour is mentioned there in the D section. And the darkness is over the land. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As we move toward the middle of the passage, the two robbers are crucified him. And then there's a point where the two robbers, both robbers, are reviling him. Now, I mean, Paul is right here and mentioned this. There must have been a conversion experience with one of those robbers on the cross. Because there was one time for, for a few hours, one of those robbers is mocking Jesus along with the other one. But later, in another gospel account, we read about that robber believing in Jesus. So when you put the themes together here, there's a time when both of them are mocking Jesus, reviling Jesus, hurling insults against Jesus. But, but, but the Spirit of God comes upon a robber right before he dies. And then he actually has faith in Jesus and says, remember me when you enter into paradise. In the middle of this passage is what I'm going to look at today is the mockery and the blasphemy of the chief priest where they say, save yourself, come down from the cross and we'll believe. Ah, ha, ha, ha. And they're laughing at him. You notice this in verse 29. You can, put, you can put the outline away. I'm done with it for now. But in verse 29 to 32, let me read this to you. This is the center of this passage as you look at this structure. It says, those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads saying, ha, ha. You who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. The chief priests also mocked him among others, uh, among themselves with the, the scribes, saying he saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. One commentator I read on this passage of Scripture referred to this as the mockery of hell. I think it's a good expression. The mockery of hell, all of it, is mocking the Lord Jesus Christ as he is dying on the cross. Think of this. God the Father has abandoned his son to die on the cross as a sacrifice. And at the same time, the world at large here 
is mocking, laughing, blaspheming Jesus Christ as they kill him and murder him on the cross. After a mock trial, after injustice and all the false accusations they bring against him. You'll notice that mockery here in this passage of Scripture serves as a hinge point in this passage. Um, After Jesus endures the, the mockery of hell, you'll notice that there's some changes that start to happen in the passage. One of the the changes is this tasting of wine. First of all, Jesus did reject the wine earlier. Later, as he endures the mocking, as he endures the forsaking of his father, then he tastes the wine. Let me go ahead and give, give you an explanation of this detail and that, what that significance is. When you study food in the Bible, food is very important. And one of the foods in the Bible is wine. When you study the Bible, uh, uh, wine, when you study wine in the Bible and its meaning, wine is a sign of, of completion, especially the, the drinking or tasting of wine. It means your job is done. It's time to rest. It's over. Whenever Jesus Christ tastes this wine after he's been mocked, after he has endured his father's forsaking, it is signifying that his job is done. It is signifying that now it is time to give up his life and lay down his life. So that's the significance of Jesus tasting the wine. He has satisfied hell there on the cross. And then you'll notice that there's an obvious change in the passage, which I mentioned earlier. The passage begins with soldiers mocking Jesus Christ, but it ends with the centurion... You think of this, this is not a low-ranking man. This is a man over a hundred different soldiers. This is a high-positioned person in the Roman army. And he is the one that demonstrates saving faith here on the cross. Right after, a few hours earlier, he was participating in the mockery of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when he sees all this, things change. So as a general overview, this this passage, as you can tell, is is hope is getting you to to realize how the death of Jesus Christ is changing things after he endures the mockery and the death on the cross. What I want to emphasize today for the rest of my time is talk about mockery. There's three things that mockery reveals, especially here in this passage. And we're going to see how relevant this is whenever we have people mock Christians, when you may experience some degree of mockery or shame that's given to you because of your Christian faith and your Christian stance. Number one, what does mockery reveal? It reveals, first of all, insecurity. The mockery that is mentioned here by the chief priest and by all those who are crucifying Jesus Christ, their mockery is revealing how insecure they really are. Earlier in Mark's gospel, it says that Pilate even knew that the reason they brought Jesus before the court for Pilate to bring this crucifixion verdict, the reason was was because the chief priests were envious of Jesus Christ envious of him. Let me try to paint the picture for you at this point. 
Uh, Jesus has, for the past three years, you think of all he's done. All the miracles he has done. All the healings. um, All of feeding 5,000 people. Having a voice that 5,000 people could listen to and that thousands of people could hear from a mountaintop. I'm sure Jesus Christ was a great speaker. I'm sure that he could actually be heard. People loved his words. He has resurrected people from the dead. And all this news report is coming to the chief priest in, in Jerusalem and all the priests and all the people, and they, they can't stop it. And they feel so envious and so insecure with the crowds that Jesus is gathering for three years. And Jesus even stops the mouths of the Pharisees. They try to catch him in these questions in the temple. They try to one-up him in their knowledge. And Jesus makes these statements in their face before the whole crowd. And it exposes how weak, how ignorant, and how selfish all of these men are. And so for a few hours, over a one-night period, they get the upper hand. They get somebody to betray Jesus. They go in the dark dark of night to arrest him, put him in this mock trial. And now all of that insecurity is coming out. All that pent-up anger for the past three years and insecurity of this man that they feel threatened by is now coming out in... This way of mockery. And they're putting all this shame and laughing at him as he's dying on the cross. And so the ones who are really insecure here, the ones who are really weak here, are the ones who are doing the mocking. The ones who are doing the shame shifting. They're trying to put shame on Jesus Christ and shift it to him as he dies on the cross. It's the first thing you learn about mockery in this passage. The second thing you learn about mockery in this passage is that mockery reveals irony. As I just mentioned, the people in this scene here, uh, the crowd, they have a political upper hand. They have the power, so to speak, right now on the, the visual presence of it. They've won their case against Jesus Christ with this mock trial. They've sentenced him to death. All the political forces here had the upper hand, so so it appears. They're the ones in power. But what is ironic about this? The ones in power are revealing how powerless they have been. That's what mockery does. If you're a person in power, and you're doing the mocking, you're doing the laughing, you're doing the scorning, You're doing what all these chief priests are doing. You're revealing something in your heart about how insecure, how fearful you have been. And you just now have this power play for a time. But your your mockery is showing how really insecure, emotionally unstable you have been and fearful you have been. And now you're throwing all this mockery here on this person. And that's what they're doing here. And it's it's really it's an it's mockery is ironic. Again, the people in power who are mocking are showing how powerless they have been. It's like there's this been this um, fear, frustration, and this anger that they have pent up for three years now. And it's, there's this release valve. And finally, 
Over the past few hours, they got the upper hand of the man who has resurrected the dead, who has calmed the storm, who has fed 5,000, who has raised the girl from the dead, healed people left and right, and thousands of people have been healed. Finally, for the first time in three years, they got the upper hand. Now they can laugh and put shame on him. So they think. Well, it's kind of like the, um, you've heard the imagery of the, some people may have Teflon tape in the sense of you try to throw it at them, but it just doesn't stick to them too well. You know, it just balances off. That's kind of what Jesus is, is going, on, going on here. Because here's my third point about mockery. The mockery of this passage of Scripture reveals the strength of Christ. Because of this, Jesus, number one, does not return their mockery with mockery. There's an internal fortitude in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's, a, there's an emotional stability in Him that as you read this passage of Scripture, all that mockery, He doesn't respond to it. Their mockery kind of bounces off of Him. He's not even responding to really to, uh, or eye for eye in a sense, if he not respond, he's, not, he's not trying to defend himself. In fact, one in another gospel account, what does he do? He prays for them. Lord, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. He prays for them. Think of this as well. Their mockery did not move him from his mission. One of the mocking statements of the priest is, hey, come down from the cross. Now, you've got to imagine this. That's like the embodiment of the devil. The devil comes in, possesses these people and says, come down from the cross. Meaning, what does Satan has always tried to get Jesus to do? Get away from the cross. Don't go to the cross. And here, all this mockery is another, the last minute temptation. You can save yourself from death. But what has been his calling? What has been his mission uh, as the man of God, as God the man? He knows that he's been called with the responsibility and the duty to self-sacrifice. He's not going to let this mockery convince him to pull the nails out and miraculously bring healing to his hands and say, see, I didn't die. I'm your Messiah. He could. So to speak, you know, hypothetically, he had the power to do all that, just like he had the power to calm the storm. But he resists that temptation. And so this mockery that he's enduring reveals an internal strength of the Lord Jesus Christ in himself that he does not go down to their level of mockery. He rises above it, really. This leads me to a, my last question that I want to ask and answer for you. And we don't really have an answer to this question in this passage, but we have the answer to the question later in the Bible. Here's the question. What did Jesus think about their mockery? And all the shame and the insults that were laid upon him at this time, right before he dies, and they're verbally crucifying him with their words as well with their physical crucifixion. What is Jesus' concept of their words as they're trying to stick it to him and pin it on him and make him feel so shameful? The answer to this question is found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, 
verse 2. You don't need to turn there, but let me read it to you. It says this, that we look unto, we're looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame. And He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What the book of Hebrews says is that Jesus Christ despised their shame. He despised the mockery and the shame that they were trying to stick to Him. Now, this word despise, we often use it in a very negative sense, like something you're not supposed to do. Um, the word despise, it means to, in a negative sense, it means to look down upon someone or something, to have disrespect for someone. To, if you despise someone, you look at them as being worthless. Um, you look at them in a very distasteful manner. You regard someone or something as unworthy of your notice or your consideration. You despise them. That's, that's a sinful and evil thing to do. But what this passage of Scripture is using the same word and the same meaning in a positive way. Jesus is not despising them, per se, the persons, he is despising the shame. He is looking down on the mockery and the shame as if it is so far below him, so beneath him, that is basically worth ignoring. All their shame, all that mockery, all the words that he hears, it's worthless. It has no weight to really be considered. There's no currency of it in his eyes, and it's just to be despised. What is really painful to Jesus here? What is really hurtful? And this is where, what Mark wants you to see. It's not the words. It's not the mockery of the world. It's what his Father and, and the Spirit have done. That's where the pain lies in. This is why he says, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? One commentator suggests the reason, one reason why he mentions the word God twice here. Not simply is it a reference or a quotation of the Bible from Psalm 22 verse 1. But Jesus Christ is one of the persons of the Holy Trinity. The first person in the Holy Trinity is God the Father. Another person in the Holy Trinity is God the Spirit. And here God the Son speaks to God the Father and God the Spirit saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here you see Jesus Christ and His emphasis. The real focus, His real focus point is what God the Father and God the Spirit have done to Him, forsaken Him on the cross. And you may ask, well, why has God forsaken Jesus? Why is God so, quote, maybe mean to Jesus and putting all this hell on Jesus and putting them, Him through this? It's because He simply should have done it to you. So, Jesus Christ stands in as your substitute. He suffers what you should have suffered. So that there's a contrast here between what Jesus is suffering and what will happen to you in your, the rest of your life. And that is this. God forsook Jesus Christ on the cross in that time of darkness so that He will never, ever, ever forsake you. That's how much 
God loves you. And I, I say this with um, as much reverence as possible, but it's almost as if that it's like as if God loves you more than Christ almost. It's like God treats Christ so much worse than he will ever treat you. That's how much he loves you so much that his, he gave his son to suffer what you would never suffer. Wow, the love of that. So what, what, what you learn from this is two things. Number one, and this is how the, the, um, the beauty of the cross is. You, you learn what Jesus Christ accomplished for you. That's one angle. But also, as I've been emphasizing today, you learn how Jesus Christ set the pattern for you, set the role model for you of how to live in this world. And that's what I want to end in today, and that is some applications of, of mockery. Because as Jesus Christ rose above the mockery, he rose above the shame of the world that the world tried to stick on him, the world's going to try to do the same thing to you. You're going to have ethics. You're going to have standards. You're going to have opinions. You're going to have viewpoints that the world really does not like. And the world is going to try to verbally crucify you. The world is going to call you stupid. The world is going to call you in mocking names. The world is going to call you antiquated, which means, oh, your stuff is out of date. The world is going to do everything you can, especially all of you young kids, girls and boys, when you go to college, you're going to try, your, your, your peers, your teachers, wherever you go, there's going to be people who try to mock your Christian stance. Your goal, or even your boyfriend or girlfriend may try to do this. Your goal in those situations is to despise. To rise above and look down upon that mockery as being worthless. As being total distasteful as being not worthy of your consideration. That's why being baptized into Christ Jesus is such significance. Jesus Christ gives you a triune name, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You're marked and identified as belonging to Him. And you, since you belong to Christ and you have the Holy Spirit, you have the backbone to stand against the world's mocking. But also let me encourage you in this way. What this passage encourages with us as well. After Jesus endures the mocking, goes through his mission, stands his ground, basically, and, and fulfills his mission, things change. The centurion starts to believe in him. The centurion's frame of reference starts to change and fits into Jesus' frame. You see how Jesus is leading here? He's leading the centurion to himself. Because he simply endures all the mocking. He endures all the shame. He looks, he despises it. And then this man starts to change his opinion about Jesus. It's very similar to you. This is the principle of leadership. The world's going to try to get you to shift your frame to fit the world. When you stand against it and you endure the shame and you get verbally crucified, you get ostracized. And you despise the shame all the way to the end, no matter what the cost. People are going to be thinking, man, that girl has a backbone. That man has some conviction, has some gumption to be reckoned with. Where do you get that from? Why do you stand so strong upon that opinion? This is why Mark wants you to see 
that when a man fulfills his mission to honor God, it functions very similar to Jesus Christ on the cross where you fulfill your mission, you stand your ground, you, en- you endure the shame, you despise it, and then the world starts to shift its opinion into your direction because you're honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not honoring yourself and you're not trying to satisfy the world. But sometimes the world will come along and say, hmm, I want to hear what you have to say about this. This is why this passage is encouraging on two different levels. It shows you what Christ did for you, but also it shows you the pattern of how to endure such a mocking world where shame is trying to be stuck to you. Rise above all of that and just simply despise it. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the encouragement that we see in Jesus Christ. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you'll strengthen us, Lord, with the power of the Holy Spirit to do likewise. In his name we pray. Amen.